On this week's Gulhani on Politics, hapless, Scotland's Health Secretary should step aside, hospice supporting our amazing palliative care sector, and happy, the Shettleston's men's shed, where retirees gather to chat, learn some skills, or even take up a new hobby. Hello and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Dr Sandesh Gulhani. Pressure is mounting on Scotland's Health Secretary to accept responsibility for record NHS waiting times, missed targets, failed workforce planning and a flimsy excuse of a plan to get the NHS through the upcoming winter. Trust has evaporated. So much so that Scotland's nurses, for the first time ever, have now voted for strike action. Nurses seek a better pay offer. But it's not all about pay. The SNP government's failed stewardship of the NHS has left patients at risk due to staff shortages. Nurses are demoralised and undervalued. Scotland's First Minister, Nicola Sturgeon, was not in Parliament to defend her beleaguered Health Secretary, Humza Yusuf, as she was by the seaside in Blackpool for a meeting of the British-Irish Council. So the SNP's Deputy First Minister, John Swinney, was left to defend the indefensible. Scottish Conservatives leader Douglas Ross was not holding back. Scotland's NHS is in crisis. And whoever the SNP tried to blame, it's obvious that the man responsible is sitting right there next to the Deputy First Minister. Hamza Youssef has failed. And all he can do is spin that the SNP is in recovery when really it's at breaking point. Just how much worse does it have to get for patients and staff in Scotland before he takes responsibility? Mm-hmm. Deputy First Minister, Scotland's NHS deserves better than Hamza Youssef. When will this Health Secretary be sacked? Yeah. When indeed. For the SNP, which has been running Scotland's NHS for the past 15 years, it's all the UK government's fault. John Swinney wants more money, even though the Scottish government this year received the largest Treasury settlement on record, amounting to an extra £2,100 for every Scot, compared to the amount per head of population allocated to the rest of the UK. The trouble is how this SNP-led government chooses to commit its money. Tens of millions of pounds is allocated to external affairs and pseudo-embassies. They want another independence referendum, £20 million. They went £200 million and counting over budget with a nationalised ferry builder with orders running six years late. There's also a secretive half a billion pounds to guarantee a private investor's borrowings in a loss-making aluminium plant. And don't get me started on the £1.3 billion or more that the SNP could end up spending on backroom bureaucracy to set up a national care service. This is SNP economics. So when the SNP complains it needs more funds for the NHS, we have to ask the question, what are they actually doing with taxpayers' money? But we are also asking questions about their lack of strategic thinking and an inability to solve problems. Take primary care, GP practices, which are struggling to cope with what amounts to a perpetual, extreme winter of demand. This is a typical Monday in GP surgery. I'm in for about eight to start with paperwork, and believe me, there's a lot to plough through. In the background, I hear the volume of phones ringing and our fantastic surgery staff 
handling call after call who also deal with an awful lot of abuse. They are really under the cosh. By about 8.30, I've started seeing patients. Some will be struggling in pain on a long waiting list for surgery. Others have chronic conditions like COPD or diabetes. There might be a happy mum-to-be, but there might also be patients who need to be seen by a specialist in hospital immediately. As a GP, you can't afford to miss a sign that someone is going into crisis. By lunch, I've had about 30 patient contacts, and after stretching my legs at a house call and catching some fresh air, it's back to the surgery. And over the afternoon, I'll usually have about another 20 patient contacts. And during the course of the day, I'll be checking blood results from the lab, overseeing other clinical staff, including advanced nurse practitioners, allied health professionals, and paramedics. There'll be questions from pharmacists. And what about repeat prescriptions? Well, in Scotland, all practices have an online request system, or the vast majority do. And unfortunately, each and every prescription must be wet signed. We must sign it with a pen. I do about 300 of these a day. To use the jargon, we need a clear alternative pathway to primary care in order to alleviate this burden on overstretched GPs and other healthcare professionals. The fact is, patients don't have to see GPs for everything. They could have direct access or self-referral to mental health support, audiologists, dentists, social services, charities. Pharmacies can also provide a fantastic range of support for ailments and injuries. And optometrists. And as we saw in last week's Gulhani on politics, it's clear that they have better equipment than we could have in GP or in A&E. And they are absolute experts when it comes to the eye. The Scottish Government must ensure these services are properly funded. And right now, the SNP spins a narrative that has done a good job informing the public about these alternative pathways. But we know from testimonies provided to the Parliament's Health Committee that the Government is complacent and wrong. Of course, we should be mindful of the wider health service that GP practices are part of. Primary care does not function in isolation, and a worrying culture prevails in Scotland's NHS. And in terms of general staff welfare, consider the surveys by the Medical and D Dental Defence Union of Scotland. 78% of junior doctors in Scotland have experienced burnout. 42% say a lack of access to nutritious food, food at work was a contributing factor. And 66% report they fear patient safety is at risk when hungry and tired. And this is really worrying. And it's symptomatic of a management culture that does not prioritise frontline healthcare workers. I'm concerned that this culture, the reprioritising, does not stop at the hospital door and that it extends to primary care. You only need to look at how the SNP-led government gives with one hand and takes with the other to understand how serious it is about supporting GPs. In Parliament, I quoted Dr Andrew Buse, chair of BMA Scottish GP committees, who says failure to support general practice now could have dire consequences for patient care across the country this winter. He goes on to explain that the Scottish Government pledged a £30 million sustainability support package for general practice to be paid in two instalments. The trouble is, last month the BMA were informed that the second £15 million was being cut to £10 million. That announcement came shortly after more than £50 million intended to support development of health board teams across GP practices. Pharmacists, nurses, physios, mental health specialists was withdrawn. Now you might well ask, what would I do? Well, to start with, I would invest 11% of the overall NHS budget into general practice by the end of this Parliament. 
I would also increase training places to deliver 800 more GPs as promised by 2027 and ensure all GPs are supported by an MDT. This would enable GPs to offer longer appointments to those who need a doctor as other patients could be seen by allied healthcare professionals within the practice. I would ensure alternative pathways to care are properly supported and signposted as these will also ease pressure on GPs and train more independent prescribers to enable pharmacists to treat a wider range of common conditions. I believe every GP practice should have a link worker whose role is to connect patients with a range of support services in the community. And I'm a big believer in social prescribing, encouraging patients to get out and exercise either individually or in organized groups, which is essential for our physical and our mental well-being. It's a subject that so many people are uncomfortable about. I'm talking about terminal illness and end of life care. An estimated 44,000 each year in Scotland have a palliative care need, yet one in four people miss out on this much valued end of life support. Social care providers play an integral role in palliative care and help terminally ill people live as well as possible right up to their death, whether they want to continue living in their house or transfer to a specialist community setting like a hospice. With the Scottish Government pressing ahead with its plan to create a centralised national care service, palliative care providers are rightly concerned about the proposals, which currently lack any detail and will impact people during their end-of-life support. To understand more about palliative care sector and how it's funded, I spoke with Amy Dalrymple, Associate Director of Policy and Public Affairs for Marie Curie in Scotland. Marie Curie runs two hospices in Scotland, a nursing home service, undertakes palliative care research, campaigns and raises funds. Meeting with Amy at Marie Curie's hospice in Glasgow Springburn, I asked her, what is the reality behind the word hospice? A word that many people find quite scary. Oh, and it really shouldn't be a scary word. Sandesh, you've been coming round today and you've felt the warmth in this place. What a hospice is about is about life. If they cannot die at home, if they, they can't have their needs met at home. A hospice is really about that last part of your life, that very last part of your life being the best it possibly can. It's about welcoming families, it's about welcoming pets, it's about making you feel good. We have complementary therapies, we have hairdressing. It's about making sure that the end of somebody's life is the best it possibly can be. I think, actually, I think uh, I, I to be clear that you did say hairdressing salon. It was lovely to see it. And yes. there really is a hairdressing salon I, here. I did say hairdressing salon. And you can get your massage and you can get your aromatherapy and you can have your pet in as well. Where this hospice is, in the north of Glasgow, we deal with um, a lot of different communities um, and we see people in a lot of different housing situations. But for all of them, it's about doing what we can do to make their death the best possible. You know the patient, yeah. you, your nurses know the patient, in fact it goes as far as your domestic staff know the people and it's that conversations that just happen around. It's what palliative care is about. Palliative care is about the person, it's always been holistic. There's been a real movement over recent years that for, for healthcare to become more person-centred. 
and, and that's absolutely great, and, and health and, and, and social care as well to become more person-centred. Absolutely fantastic. Palliative care has been doing it from the off. You do some unique things, and you showed me the care box. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Since the pandemic, there's been a lot more um, outreach into communities. We've had to provide a lot more care at home. Um, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but what our clinical teams were finding was that they were going into people's homes uh, in certain areas um, and people, people are in poverty and people are dying in poverty and people do not have the necessities they need to keep themselves comfortable. Basic hygiene we're talking about, basic health and hygiene. So our staff have put together, this hasn't been funded by you know, any commissioner, this hasn't been funded, it's just been a decision that our nurse managers have said, this is what people need. They've put together a wee package, a wee care pack that has toothpaste, that has a toothbrush, that has soap, that has tissues, that has a face cloth, um, that has toilet roll. That it's, it's about basic hygiene for people so that they're able to stay at home. And, and I think I saw your surprise, if I may say so that this was something that actually needed to be done. But I think it's important that that's visible um, and that it's visible that that is the situation that our clinical staff, and I'm sure clinical staff um, across other organisations in Scotland are having to deal with while somebody's dying. And if we want somebody to, to have a good death, and if we as a society want to respect people who are dying and provide them with a dignified death, then the fact that it's that level of provision, that level of basic support that we need to be providing for somebody ought to be opening our eyes and thinking about how, as, as a set of decision makers and a set of actors within a system, we're able to address that. I, I must say I was surprised because it was face tissues. It was, it was deodorants. People actually can't afford that. And... You know, if I say as a, as a Glasgow MSP, you, you, you've got constituents who can't afford those things. We need to be working together to think about that is not an acceptable situation and we need to be addressing that poverty. No, absolutely. So I, what I want to move on to is funding. I want to know how you're funded uh, and how you're, you're able to do all the things that y you do. Well, Marie Curie services are all commissioned. Um, the hospice services and the nursing services are all commissioned by the integrated drug boards but they're not fully funded by those boards none of the hospice services across scotland are not marie curie not any of the other independent hospices um so so palliative care services that aren't directly provided by the nhs will be subsidized by fundraised income as well so sustainable funding and how we've reached sustainable funding is certainly a priority across the sector, you know, not just for Marie Curie. And it's something we hope will be um, discussed and the solution found um, as part of the new palliative care strategy that the Scottish Government has proposed. It would frankly cost them more to have to do it all themselves, but we need to come to a solution that is sustainable, that isn't year to year, so that we can plan, so that we can recruit. Well, I mean, it's clear there are two things in life that are certainties, taxes and death and dying with dignity, dying in the way that you want to, dying in comfort is very important because it'll happen to us all. So for me, multi-year funding makes sense for palliative care because everyone in the population is going to go through this. 
it is one of the things that you think that you could plan for, yes. What you don't know, of course, as a, as a commissioner, is, is how and when people are going to die. Um, and you don't know what services are going to be required. It's why early identification is hugely important for, for so for GPs like yourself um, and other clinical uh, other clinicians early identification of palliative care needs is, is really important for that to be able to to be able to plan those services the other aspect of that is um, broader uptake of anticipatory care planning and sharing those plans um, with um, amongst services and with commissioners. We don't talk about death, we don't like to anticipate death, um, our own deaths or the deaths of those close to us. And it means that when somebody comes to the end of life, it can be very difficult, very difficult to cope, for people to cope with emotionally. And it means that you end up with unplanned, unscheduled care demands, instead of being able to do things in a planned way and in a way that's accepted by the person and by the family. If we're talking about dying well and we're talking about uh, what's coming in the future, one of the things that we have in Parliament is the Assisted Dying Bill. So I'd like to know Marie Curie's position on the Assisted Dying Bill um, and also you know, what your thoughts are. I actually get a bit frustrated about it because um, when I'm talking about giving people the best death possible, what I want to be able to show is how how really good palliative care can really support people um, and how the, 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 the wider support around that, around bereavement support, around breaking the taboos around death, um, there are all these other ways of improving the way that people die. But Marie Curie doesn't take a, a view for or against. Um, we're working within the organisation to try and you know, kind of figure out what the implications would be for us, because um, it's complex. I think it, it requires a lot of consideration. Um, for me, it's about choices, but my ideal scenario would be that people don't go down the assisted dying route because the palliative care input is so good that they don't really feel that they need to. But again, it comes down to personal choice, I think we would be absolutely delighted to work with you on improving palliative care. Amy Dalrymple, Associate Director of Policy and Public Affairs for Marie Curie in Scotland. The Shettleston's Men's Shed is on the ground floor of a tenement in East Glasgow Shettleston Road. It's a meeting place with a large carpentry workshop, a computer and music room, pool table and space for men, most of whom are retired, to gather, enjoy some company, chat, learn some skills, or take up a hobby. The Men's Shed hosts visits by community nurses to advise on health checks, and it also runs newbie computer courses supported by Glasgow's Kelvin College. The membership has grown from the original six men in 2014 to around 90 today. And this is men from all different walks of life. I met with one of the founding members, Harry, who explained why the Men's Shed is so important. Plus, when you get in the men's shed, men speak to each other for, for probably the first time since they've retired. So you find out your neighbours, you find out anything else, you, you discuss things that you don't discuss with anybody. You're back at you. As Maui says, you never left your work, Harry. 
because it's just what you want, it's just you communicating, you speaking, you, you know, and that's what it's all about, it's helping each other and help yourself doing that. And in fact, so you're talking about helping each other and things that, that, that you're doing, and we can hear, I think it's probably yeah. picking up at the mics, that the noise from the woodwork shop yeah. back there. So what, what type of things do you offer for, for men to do here? Well, there's a, they can come in and do it in the joint. As we said before, this is a built-up area. Uh, in, in a tenement, you don't get a, a shed in the back. You know what I mean? So you can't kind of fix it in the house. So you can actually bring it down here. But your granny maybe has got a nice antique and needs the, the leg put back on, instead of throwing it back out away. And, as you do, you see it on the television every day of the week. You know, there always be somebody, oh, look, this has been lying in, 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 in the drawer with the likes of my grandfather. It doesn't need to lie anywhere. They bring it in here and the boys have a, a go at it, putting it back together again. And they, they create results. And then that's helping, that's a community help. You know, that will go on for as long as we want it to go on. Unfortunately, COVID set us back. But I'm not saying we need a better place, but we like a place that uh, we like a green area that we can grow plants and grow fruit and veg and things like that. Yeah. Tell me about men's sheds. So there's different men's sheds around. What about rural areas? Are there men's sheds in rural areas? Well, as I said before, Glasgow is the first men's shed. But in Fina now, about men's shed, about Mike Jen in London, you know, as well, all of this. He told me there's a shed in uh, Wester Hills in, in Aberdeen. And I went away up and seen them, you know, I said, I'm going up there. And we went way up, uh, introduced to the other guy, the, the chairman of the main shed now, was actually one of the boys I met in Aberdeen and Wester Hills. And they're in a, a library. And Aberdeen gave them the library and a peppercorn lent for a pound. So they've got a big shed. Any money that comes into them goes into the shed. It's not as we pay a rent, so anyone who comes in here, we've got to pay the rent and the right, the, the electricity. So they don't pay that. So they've got sponsors that pays whatever. And they've got a big, big shed, a lot bigger than ours. Plus, you can go as far as Oban, you can go anywhere. There's sheds everywhere now in Scotland. Well, well, thank you very much for joining me, Uncle Harley and Politics. And look, it's vital the work you're doing because men need to talk uh, and men are very bad at it. So hopefully men's sheds opening in different places will promote men talking to each other. Can I ask you a question? Yes. We're the guys in this community. We've done for 50 years. We're just looking for a space. We should have the shed open and it should be warm. Tea and coffee for the lads. They come off the street and get, get a heat. But these guys have done their bit. We don't want to pay for it. Don't they? We don't want to pay for it. You know, if it wouldn't be for the lottery, this wouldn't have this survived. Because the lottery you know, gives us money, they see the benefit of it. Mm -hmm. But I'd rather see the government taking that chance the way they do in Australia. Well, see here. What I'll do is I'll write to the government and I'll ask them if they will give some consideration to funds mentioned. That's very good. If you do that, you're on the weather. I will do that. Right. Lovely. Thank you very much. That was Harry from Shettleston's Men's Shed. And that's also all from me on this week's eclectic take on Scottish politics. Gulhani on politics. Remember to subscribe and tune in each week. Until the next episode. 
I'm Dr. Sandesh Gulhani. Bye for now.